0: pray again for just a second. Lord, think of the verse from John's Gospel Eric has on the website that you desire worshipers, and those who worship you, Lord, are called to worship in spirit and in truth. It's, it's your spirit, Lord, as always, that communicates your truth to us. And Would you unbind our hearts? Would you open our ears to hear the things you mean us to hear, Lord? And would you help us to respond to you? In ways that bring life to us and honor to you in jesus name amen guys this is a bit of a record for me this morning it was january 23rd of this year that we began second corinthians i don't know if this has seemed like in a hurry to you this is preaching as fast as i can i got through a 13 chapter book in about 10 months this is record-setting pace I've taught through John's Gospel before, and I think if you add up the three times I was in it, I think it was a four or five year process. So just to give you a sense of my normal pace. So I am thrilled to be wrapping up Second Corinthians this morning. It has been uh, a really challenging epistle for me. I hope it has been for you. It's been a very rewarding one for me as well. So hopefully that goes both ways. Uh, this has been Paul at his best. This is the most personal letter in the New Testament from Paul and he wrote of course most of the epistles. This is most personal. You see his heart reflected in this more than any other epistle he wrote. And you know I've got him addressing this very carnal, very shallow group of Christians in the city of Corinth and he rises to the occasion in a sense by lowering himself sort of down to their level so that he can get, get a hold of them, get into their heads, change their thinking a little bit. Before we get to the last eight verses this morning, do a quick review. Hopefully you remember some of these. It's going back almost a year, but hopefully you remember some of these. Some of the high points or some of the main points we made over the last year. Chapter 1, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can turn around and comfort others. From chapter 1. And also do you remember back uh, We want to live like those who are under a death sentence. We want to live like we're dying. You know, if I'm dying tomorrow, what's my perspective on life today? We want to live like we're dying from chapter 1. Chapter 2, to me, uh, the images are rich on this one. Paul used the Roman victory parade in Rome as this picture of Christians marching in Christ's triumph, and yet there's destruction for some, and there's glory for others. And the smells and the sights, the sounds, they're all the same. But for those two groups, they come across entirely differently based on where am I going? Am I part of the victory parade? Or am I part of the conquered? This is a theme, you know, Paul comes back to time and time again in this letter that he really was an apostle, even though they they weren't sure about him. And in chapter 3, he said, Your faith, that's the only letter we, we need. The letter of recommendation the letter of introduction he said your faith that's our letter your faith is the proof of our apostleship another high point for me in this letter was the comparison in chapter three between the old covenant and the new and Paul just leaves no doubt whatsoever the superiority of the new covenant you know the Holy Spirit writing on our hearts instead of Moses or God writing on tablets of stone you know no comparison basically Paul says you need to get a hold of how much privilege you have because you're under this new, this better covenant. Chapter 3. Chapter 4, this is another graphic illustration going back to Genesis 1. Paul said every time there's a conversion, every time someone trusts in Christ, it's as if back in the creation account when God says, let there be light. Part of this creation account when someone trusts in Christ, it's as if God says, let there be light. There's this creation moment again with every new person's conversion. Let there be light from chapter 4. Also, the downside of that, you remember, was that though you have this glorious treasure, you have this eternal life, the life of God Himself in us. God speaks light or life into us. But Paul says, but the downside is that that life is put inside these cracked clay vessels, these earthen jars that crack and fracture easily our humanity, our fallen humanity still is what clothes or sort of surrounds, sometimes swallows up that light or life of Christ inside us from chapter 4. Chapter 5, really key, key thing for any of us today or any time. Paul said he made it his ambition to live in such a way that he was prepared to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. Not because Paul wasn't sure he was saved, but you remember This judgment was for believers only. And it was when Christ, our captain, the captain of our faith, reviewed our life. And some things would burn up because they were inadequate. Wrong things, wrong motives. Other things Christ would reward us for. And that all of us, every person who's trusted in Christ, has this future appointment with King Jesus in which toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye, we stand before Christ And he assesses the quality of the works of our life. Paul says, I'm living in such a way that I'm ready for that appointment. I'm ready for that future meeting. He also said there at the end of chapter 5 that the only reason we can have this judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, instead of the great white throne judgment where the lost appear before Jesus was because God provided in Christ an adequate substitute for our sins. Do you remember? the unrighteous, that's us, our unrighteousness was as it were put on Christ on the cross. The Holy One took on our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Chapter 5, substitutionary atonement. More quickly, uh, chapter 7, God's kind of repentance. You know, not just sorrow where uh, crocodile tears, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but no change. No, the kind of change of mind and heart that brings a change in our actions and what we do. Uh, Chapter 8 and 9, Paul talked about grace-giving, why we should give graciously and how we should give graciously. Chapter 10, he was into the realms of spiritual warfare. If you remember, too, it wasn't just that sometimes we fight an enemy without. It was that sometimes the enemy is within, within our own ranks, sometimes within our own leadership. Spiritual warfare is up, up close and personal sometimes. Then in chapters 11 and 12, uh, Paul was reduced to boasting, if you remember, the pseudo-apostles that he contrasts himself with throughout the epistle. They're braggers, and they're pointing out how great they are, and Paul's reduced to boasting in chapters 11 and 12. But he says, he does it with a twist, because he boasts about his weakness instead of his strength. And he says the reason that our weaknesses are more important than our strengths is because it's in our weaknesses that God most profoundly reveals His strength and His glory. So Paul said, I'm going to boast in my weakness because that's when the power of Christ, the honor, the glory of God is most fully revealed in me. It's not in my strengths, he said. It's in my weaknesses. All that brings us to this morning's last eight verses. Paul brings us to his final words to this very carnal, shallow church, a church I think quite a bit like the church in the West today. So if you've got a study sheet or your Bible, I'm reading from the New American Standard, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7-14. through 14. Paul concludes, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved for we can do nothing against the truth but only for the truth for we rejoice when we ourselves are weak but you are strong this we also pray for that you be made complete for this reason I'm writing these things while absent so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down finally brethren rejoice be made complete be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So concludes Second Corinthians. We're only going to look at two points this morning. The first is this. Paul's goal for these Christians, these obstinate, recalcitrant, Hard to interact with Christians was one thing, and it was that they would be complete. You see that two times here. If you look at verse 9, Paul says, We pray that you be made complete. And then in verse 11, he says again, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete. Now the Greek here is katartesis, and it means to be restored or brought back fully to a new, complete version of the thing, of who you are, what you're called to be. So when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking of the TV show Extreme Makeover. You know where they go up to a house and maybe it's a hovel, maybe it's well-worn or past its prime, or maybe it just is inadequate for the needs of the folks living there. But you know the team comes in and they take whatever that structure was and they make it over. And they completed in this process so that it is a better version than it was before. And it's a completed version. It now is a good fit for them. It's in this extreme makeover, something that wasn't what it needed to be, has been transformed into something better, something appropriate, something that's a good fit for the folks living there. And that's the thought here for Paul. Paul says, my goal for you is that you be made complete that the process of Christ at work in you doesn't stop at some low, mediocre level of transformation, but God's goal for you is to become this full-blown, grown-up version of Christ Himself on the earth. Your unique personality, your place and time and history and the people you interact with, but Christ's life full-blown in you so that you're the grown-up version of what God's meant you to be, of what He's called you to be in Christ. Paul says, my goal for you is that you be made complete. So in verse 9, he says essentially we pray for your restoration, your completeness. In verse 11, it's emphatic. He's actually saying, restore yourselves. Be at work in this process yourselves. Give yourselves to this process of restoration, of this complete makeover. Don't settle for less. Don't stop short but be a part of God's process in growing you up into Christ-likeness until you reach the end, the full-blown, completed version that God has in mind for you. You see this same thought in Colossians 1.28. Paul writes to the Greek Colossian city later, not much later than this letter. The English word is the same, though the Greek is different. He says there in Colossians 1.28 that we may present every man complete in Christ. Same thought, different word, the the Greek word there is teleos. And that means the end of the thing. You know, we use a telescope to see something that's distant, that's down the road. Well, Paul says there in Colossians, our goal is to present everyone the way God wants them to end up. You know, when we are saved, we bring our sinful past, our sinful mindsets, God puts this new creation, this new life in us, and it's supposed to begin this process of restoration. Where God's reclaiming us. He's he's at work in us in this extreme makeover to make us something that we weren't before. And whether you think of it as this restoration process or the end of the road that God's call is on our life, either way it's the same thing. Paul says the only thing I care about for you guys is that you be made complete in Christ. That's my goal. I don't want to stop short of that and I don't want you to stop short of that. That's all he cares about. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with what he gets out of it. So look at verse 7 for just a second. He says, I don't care how I appear to others. I don't care if I appear unapproved or less than apostolic if you quit doing the wrong things and if you start doing the right things. Remember we talked about Paul the parent just a few weeks ago, I think? You know, where the parent lays their life down, they expend themselves For their children. It's the same thought here. Paul says, I don't care what I get out of the process. It's not about me. I've been called to help you come to Christ initially and then grow up in Christ. That's the process. That's all I care about. And whatever it costs me, that's okay. Reputation, appearance to others, all of that, Paul says, it's meaningless to me as long as. I'm part of the process of you being made complete in Christ. You see the same thing at verse 9. I don't care if I'm weak, he says, as long as you're spiritually strong. If you're being transformed into Christ's image and likeness, Paul says, that's the only thing to me that matters. I'm glad to be spent on you if that's what's going on. You know, he says there too... He doesn't want to be severe when he comes back. You know, he's been fairly severe in both of his letters to the Corinthians. Pretty sharp, sharp sharp-tongued. He calls them fools in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, he rebukes them here. And he says, guys, I want to be severe in the letter so that when I get to see you personally, I don't have to be. Because he really loves them and he really wants a good relationship with them. But he also has this responsibility and he's doing what he can to bring them up to the truth on one hand, but he doesn't want to be any more severe than he has to be also. He's not emphasizing on being a hammer, but he's trying to be helpful as it's required. Verse 10, his goal is to build up the church, to help those Gentiles who'd come to faith in Christ, now to complete that process of Christ-like transformation. If you find yourself in any uh, spiritual mentoring role, If you're a leader in the church, if you disciple other people, gals or guys, if you're a parent raising children, if you're an older sibling, if you're an older friend in a relationship of friends where you know you have more growth in Christ, more maturity in Christ, for anyone that has a spiritual mentoring role to someone else, this attitude is really key. What are we willing to lay aside for the benefit of the person we're, we're serving? if it costs us more than we thought going in, and by the way, it always does, what are we willing to lay aside in order that Christ's work in that person's life, that work of transformation, will keep going? That they'll become the teleos, the end version of what God has in mind for them. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to lay down for that process, for Christ's life being built up in them? This is a huge, huge thing. And and by the way, This is sort of where the rubber meets the road, where it's a pretty good indication of the spiritual maturity I'm bringing into the equation as a mentor or a discipler of others. If I give up easily, if my feelings get hurt, and I say, I've had it with them, you know, if if I say, I thought it looked different, I thought they'd respect me. I thought they'd appreciate me more than they do. What am I really willing to do? See, Paul says... I don't care what it costs me. I'm totally committed to this goal. Your transformation. And if you find that you're in a relationship in which you have this mentoring, spiritual discipleship role in the life of someone else, if we don't bring this kind of mindset in, this kind of mentality in, it won't work. Because people will disappoint us. You know, the sinners are discipling the sinners. You know, you're bound for headache and sorrow and Disappointment is going to happen. So what is it that motivates me? What will keep me going? Paul's vision and his goal was adequate because he said, my goal is your completeness in Christ. Your full-blown extreme makeover transformation. That's my goal. I'm not stopping short at anything less. So he says he's willing to humble himself in order to exalt them. He's willing to be poor if they're enriched. He's willing to step down from his lofty position of Christ's chief apostle to the Gentiles, to stoop down low and serve these lowly pagans, these Gentiles who don't know much, but who've now come to faith in Christ. I hope that sounds familiar. So Paul's willing to humble himself to serve others. Paul's willing to give up his authority or glory to serve others. Does that sound familiar? I'm thinking of Philippians 2 here, verses 3 through 8. And by the way, though Paul doesn't point this out repeatedly through this letter, Paul has made it his ambition throughout that he wants to display Christ to them. And you remember the leaders they want to follow, the pseudo slash super apostles, they speak well. They're successful. They look like the model the Corinthians want to follow. We've touched on this. The trouble is that's not what Christ looked like. You remember in the Gospels Jesus says, if they persecute me, They'll persecute you. Jesus is in heaven today. He's glorified by the Father. But he's not come back to the earth. And he's a king in exile. And Christians follow a king in exile. And when he left this world, as far as the world was concerned, it was in shame. Christ's followers, as far as the world goes, get shame. It's not glory here. If it is, we're, we're probably doing something wrong. So Paul tries to embody Christ's kind of sacrificial, humble servant leadership in his relationship with the Corinthians. He's trying to embody Christ to them, the real Jesus, not some pseudo-Jesus by these pseudo-leaders. So listen to what he writes to the Philippians later when he describes what was Jesus' ministry on the earth like. What did that look like? Paul starts there in Philippians 2 at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what Paul's doing to the Corinthians. You're more important than I am, he says. I'm willing to lay my life down to serve you. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not all about me. It's not all about us have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You remember in the incarnation Jesus becomes a man and he lays aside aside some of the prerogatives of deity. So on one occasion he says about this second coming he says no one knows I don't know when I'm returning to His disciples because He had laid aside elements of His deity. He didn't try and hold on to the glory He had as the second person of the Trinity in the Incarnation. He let go of it. He humbled Himself in the Incarnation. He emptied Himself. He took the form of a bondservant. Think of John 15 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He took the form to them, specifically of the lowest servant in a household at that time to wash their feet and said, if I've done it, you need to do it. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And of course in Jesus' day, death on a cross was the worst conceivable way to end your life on the earth. It was ultimate shame. It was meant to be and that's the way he ended his life before the resurrection at least. So Paul is taking his own advice. And he is emptying himself of his choices, his prerogatives, so that he can live a life that looks like Jesus in serving the Corinthians, no matter how they respond to him. He says, all I care about is that these folks become the full-grown version of Christ God the Father means them to be, just like Jesus. Jesus paid the price, laid it all down for us. Paul says, that's what we're called to do for each other. So Paul is practicing what he preached. He's put on Christ kind of humility throughout this whole thing. This is really, for me, it's an acid test of our Christianity and of our faith. We are just proud, you know, by nature. We don't have to work at being proud. We are. To choose to humble ourselves really requires sort of a, a thoughtful, straight-ahead-looking decision that, Lord, we're not going that way. It's not all about me. You know, I can take the hit. I can be insulted. It's okay and I can keep serving them in your name. There's a great example of this in a movie from 1962. By the way, I'm amazed as I talk to people younger than I am. This is a black and white movie, but it's amazing. It still has value. Any of you guys in here, you don't watch black and white movies? I've been amazed. They're too old, you know, whatever. This is a black and white movie that would be worth your time. It's called The Miracle Worker, and it is a dramatization of the real life interaction between a gal named Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller. And there's one scene, if you don't watch anything else, you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, Helen Keller, young girl in the south, this is late 1800s, young girl in the south, at 19 months old, she contracts, they're not sure, meningitis, something. She goes blind and she's deaf. And she's growing up and her parents are doing the best they can you know, what do you do with a blind deaf child? How do you interact? How do you teach them? How do you instruct her? How do you help her? You know, she's in another world, an alternate reality as it were. They try one thing and another. They work hard at helping their daughter to know success. They eventually hear about a school that specializes in folks with disabilities and the mentor there, the leader, sends a young woman, she's 19 years old at the time, she's a young gal, to live with this family and help. She herself has eye problems. She also has a bit of an attitude. If you watch the movie on the front end, her mentor tells her, listen, Anne, please, you know, control yourself. Constrain yourself. You're too combative. You know, con- control yourself. So she goes into a prim proper southern mansion style living in the south where Helen Keller lives trying to be a lady. And uh, Helen is seven years old when this starts and she's sort of a little wild animal. And in the scene that I'm thinking about, they're in a formal dining room, the china's all set, the servants have loaded the dishes, you know, they're sitting down and they're talking and Helen's walking around the table, sniffing each plate and just grabbing off each plate, whatever she wants, and eating it. It's kind of like an animal, you know, at the zoo, just... So she gets to Ann Sullivan's plate, and she's not playing it. So she puts her arms up, elbows out, you know, and she can't get to the plate, and she's not happy. And so Ann Sullivan shoes the family out of the dining room, and she locks the doors. And she's, gonna, she's going to lay aside her grown-up prim-proper appearance because she's willing to duke it out with this little seven-year-old. And so what what ensues is this brawl in the dining room. And Ann Sullivan gets down on the floor to chase Helen Keller under the table and to bring her back into this chair again and again when she finally, she wants to get her to eat from a spoon. She finally gets some food in her mouth from the spoon and Helen Keller spits it back in her face. And she gets her standing in front of her. Helen slaps her on the face. So she slaps her back. And whatever Helen's dishing out, Ann Sullivan's going to keep it dishing. Because she knows that if this little wild animal that can't see and can't hear is to have any chance in life of becoming something bigger and better than her current version, it's going to require somebody getting down to her level to say, nope, I'm not settling for your life the way it is. I'm going to constrain you and require you to change and to grow up. And it's a hilarious scene. She puts one spoon after another in her hand. She throws them across the room, you know, as fast as she can get them. But the scene ends. Ann Sullivan comes out to the front lawn. You know, the mom's all worried. You know, how is she? Is she okay? And Sullivan tells her she ate with a spoon and she folded her napkin. And the mom can't believe it. See, because mom and dad, they were willing to coddle Helen. They weren't. They actually didn't know what it took to get her into this transformation to become her best version. And she was a very sharp young young girl. But her family didn't know that. Ann Sullivan did. And so Ann Sullivan came with the mentality, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how ungainly I look, how unfeminine I look. I'm going to win the battle of the wills with this young gal for her sake. So that she can grow up into the the best version that she can be. That she won't be constrained to live in this hollow empty life and of course if you know anything about Helen Keller's life she becomes a world traveler she speaks on stages around the world she's a social advocate she raises money and awareness for the disabled by the way if you look further you probably see you might not agree with some of her political and social positions but the point was Ann Sullivan said I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help this young lady out of the shackles of her blindness and her deafness into the best version of herself she can be. And if we find ourselves in any kind of role of discipleship, mentoring, parenting, older sibling, older friend, where there's someone we look at and we say, I feel a moral responsibility towards this person to help them. We've got to bring that kind of mentality to the plate because we will be disappointed. People disappoint us. That's the way of life. If we don't have Paul's kind of vision, which was Jesus's, and Ann Sullivan's, we'll fall short. We'll give up too soon, too easily. Paul had a vision of what God wanted those Corinthian believers to become. And he said, I'll do anything, I'll pay any price, I'll go to any length to help you become the grown-up, full-grown version that Christ wants you to be. For all of us, whether we're involved in mentoring others or not, this whole mindset, Paul telling them this is God's will for your life, that's, that's true for every one of us. Are we willing to go to the end of the road, to the end of the line, to say, God, I want to become the full-grown version that you've called me to be. I want to become the person that you mean to be at the end of the road, that I won't give up early, that your transformation in my life, that's my goal too. That's true for all of us. If you've trusted Christ, you're a Christian, you have that new life inside you. If you haven't, by the way, trust Christ. There's no hope of heaven. There's no hope of life. There's no hope of joy or peace or anything that sustains not only in time but in eternity apart from Christ. That's just a given. When you have the life of Christ inside you, that's the beginning of this process of reformation and extreme makeover. I want to close on this uh, second point, Paul's last good words in verses 11 through 14. You know, Paul's had this acrimonious relationship with this group. But I love that when he winds down these 13 chapters, his last words are good words, and they're words of blessing and peace. He gives a benediction. A benediction is a great word. Bene means good, and diction to speak. It's a good saying. It's a good word. We usually use it as a, a sense of blessing. Blessing. So Paul sort of hammered on these guys for 13 chapters here. But you know at the end of it all, at the conclusion, his last words are a benediction. They're a blessing. They're about grace and peace. There's a 1991 song by Susan Ashton that talks about the value of a benediction. She put it this way, I'm following a voice in faithful pursuit. I'm searching my soul to do what I'm called to do. I need your benediction. Where's your benediction? I'm battling the odds through faces of doubt. It would mean so much if you could send me out with your benediction. I need your benediction. All of us need that sense that God is for us. That someone is blessing us, not cursing us. That someone believes we have a future and a hope that it's not all about the things we've done wrong. It's not all about our failings in life. And at the end of this epistle, Paul's last words are a benediction. They're good words. They're a blessing to the folks he's had a lot of trouble with. But he still says, I'm blessing you and I believe in God's work in your life. And I think it's really important for us to take this to heart that when we leave when we part with people to give them our blessing in all the ways we can to speak a good word you know how often have you as husband and wife or parents or children or friends been huffed and mad at somebody and you say something words in anger and you leave and that was the last word they remembered was some angry word, some curse you know, how much better, whatever we've gone through together, how much better to make those last words a blessing, a benediction. By the way, the Bible is filled with, scattered with benedictions. These, these good words, these words of blessing, the most famous being from Numbers 6, verses 24 through 27. If you remember, God told Aaron the high priest to speak these words of blessing over Israel. And so people will call this the Aaronic Blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. For God to look at you, to have His eyes set upon you, that meant He was blessing you. He was looking at your life with approval and with blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. Romans 15, Paul has other benedictions as well. When he wrote the Romans, the next letter after this one in chronology, after 2 Corinthians, he wrote Romans. In chapter 15 there, the second to last chapter, his benediction there is, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit the God of hope fill you with joy and peace abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit first uh, Thessalonians 5 the 23 last one I'll mention from Paul remember the Thessalonian believers they had issues sin was one immorality and the other one they had this whole question about what do you, what happens to people when they die Christians when they die related to the second coming to the what we call the rapture how does all that work out Paul So after he's talked to them about both issues, his benediction at the end is, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you. That means set you apart from sin, make you holy. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. His benediction, His blessing. And then last one I'll share here. This is from Jude Jude's short, you know, one chapter, and he takes two verses to combine both a benediction and a doxology here. Jude was Jesus' half-brother, by the way, and he wound down this way, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. To be able to stand in God's presence means you're fully accepted, you're, you're righteous, you're justified if you can stand in God's presence. Do you remember the picture back in Psalm 1? The righteous man, he he meditates on God's Word and he's like a tree that's always bearing fruit. But do you remember the second stanza of Psalm 1? The, the, The wicked are not so. They're like chaff driven before the wind. It says the wicked cannot stand in the day of judgment. Sinners can't stand in the assembly of the righteous. It's only the righteous that can stand in God's presence. And here in Jude he says... God is able to make you stand in His presence, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. Jude is both blessing them. You're able to stand before God and he's singing God's praises at the same time. It's a benediction and a doxology. Paul made his last words, good words, words of blessing and peace roll through those quickly from verse 11 down. Paul says rejoice take joy be comforted live in peace God of love and peace is with you they haven't been a peaceful group they haven't been feeling the love from Paul but Paul says peace God's love is with you verse 12 and 13 greet each other in peace he says with a holy kiss know that others in Christ's church greet you in peace also and then the Concluding remark there, verse 14, to my mind, one of the great benedictions, one that you don't hear very often. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, Paul's last word to this group the grace of Jesus Christ, the favor, the acceptance of Jesus Christ be yours. And the love of God, the love of the Father, You remember in the upper room discourse, Jesus says, God himself, my Father, loves you. I don't need to pray on your behalf. God himself loves you. You've got that introduction to the Father and his love from Jesus' grace. And he says, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, again, if you go back in the upper room discourse in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I'm going to send another comforter. He's just like me. It's this holy tag team. And the Holy Spirit will come and He'll make known the Father to you and He'll make me known to you too. That you'll have fellowship with us through the Spirit and you'll also have fellowship with each other by the Spirit. So Paul's last words to this church are grace from the Son, love from the Father, and fellowship with or in or through the Spirit. I'd take that as a last word or I'd give that as a last word. This good word, this benediction, this blessing at the end of the day. After all the wrangling and acrimony and rejection and hurt feelings, Paul's last words to them are benediction. They're words of blessing, not rebuke. The rebukes are over, the reproofs are over. The last thing he says is a benediction. I think that's a great model for us. You know, no matter how much you find yourself at odds with another Christian, with a spouse, with a friend, someone at church, someone across the country, if they're a fellow Christian, God the Father, your Father, loves them as much as He loves you. And however you find yourself at odds with them, to pray God's peace and to say a word of blessing and benediction on them is entirely appropriate because God loves them and He set His love on them. And He's at work in them just like He's at work at you to perfect the Christ-like life in them also. What a way to go. If you're a Christian, all of us have the same glorious future with Christ, with the Father, forever. So to make those last words words of blessing, this just makes sense. To make our last words good words. The Lord bless us and keep us. The God of hope fill us with all joy and peace. The God of peace Himself sanctify us entirely to the one who can keep us from stumbling. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Father, thanks that salvation is all of You. Lord, we we brought nothing to our relationship with You but our sin and our need. Lord, You provided everything for us When your son took on our humanity paid the penalty to our sin dying on the cross in our place Lord thanks that he rose from the dead and you now freely offer your grace your mercy your peace yourself to all who will simply in faith trust Jesus for their salvation Lord sometimes you have hard words to say to us sometimes that's through the scriptures sometimes it's from each other Help us to think the best, Lord. Help us to believe the best. Help us, like Paul, to end these relationships, these conversations, these interactions and relationships with good words, Lord, with words of blessing. Lord, thank you that we are so fully and richly blessed in Jesus Christ by your doing. In his name we thank you. Amen.